I have a bunch of blogs that come to my uh, inbox, and, and one of them I just wanted to begin with this morning. And uh, the author's name is uh, James White, and I just want to read you that, uh, what, what came here this, I think it was on Wednesday. Whenever the 4th of July weekend rolls around, I'm reminded of times I've traveled in the countries where freedom is severely curtailed, or that they freshly freed from the chains of injustice and the joys of their release was palpable. I was in Johannesburg on the 10th anniversary of the end of apartheid. I was in Korea when the border between North and South was electric with tension. My most powerful memory came from Moscow when I was teaching shortly after the fall of communism. One night, a group of us went to the famed Belushi Ballet, and it was a long, wonderful evening. But after we took the subway back to where we were staying, the students said, come, let us celebrate. The other two professors with me were as tired as I was, but they were so intent on joining them that we went and then found out what celebration meant to them. They wanted to gather in the dining room and sing hymns and worship God, and we did, late into the night, with more passion and sincerity than I have ever experienced. It didn't matter that we didn't sing in Russian, we worshiped God together. But I went to bed puzzled. I had never seen such passion for spontaneous and heart-filled worship. I was curious as to why they were so ready and eager to offer God love and honor. I received my answer the following morning when I was invited to speak at a church in North Moscow, a former underground church which met in secret, as so many churches had been. They were now meeting openly in a schoolhouse. I had been asked to bring a message that Sunday morning, and I didn't know that I was what I was in for for a bit of a wait. The service lasted for nearly three hours. Three, uh, there were three sermons from three different speakers with long periods of worship between each message, and I was to go last. And when it was over, I talked a bit with the pastor of the church, and I was surprised that not only the length of the service, but the spirit and the energy of the people. Throughout the entire three hours, they never let up. In spite of the length of time, they never seemed to tire. And even at the end, they, they didn't seem to want to go home. In the States, I said, you're doing well to go a single hour before every watch in the place starts beeping. And this was before smartphones. He didn't, get, he didn't get my weak attempt at humor, but he did say something that I'll never forget. It was only a few years ago that we would have been put in prison for doing what we did today. We were never allowed to gather together as a community of faith and offer worship to God. And we are just so happy and almost in a state of unbelief that we can do this not publicly together, that we don't want it to end. And not knowing that the future might hold for us here, we know that every week might just be our last. So we don't ever want to stop. So we keep worshiping together as long as we can. As I left, his words never left my mind. And I thought to myself, I will never think about worship the same again. I've been too casual about it, too laid back, taken too much for granted. These people know what it's about, really about. And because of that, they have been willing and would be willing again to suffer for it, to be imprisoned for it, to die for it. Because they've discovered that it holds that high of a yield for their life. It has that much meaning and payoff and significant. It matters that much. 
and it should matter that much to all of us as well. Um, so true in that when you think of the 4th of July and the freedom that we have, that there's churches around the world, they can't come together and meet like we meet. So there's a sense of, of thankfulness that we need to remember even in that light. But let's pray as we begin here the text this morning. Father, I want to give this passage to you. And would your spirit work as we dig into this text a bit? And would you just change hearts and change lives as a result of this passage today? So we give it to you. These things we pray in your name. Amen. One of the more challenging roles that I have as a pastor is doing funerals. I would much rather do a wedding than a funeral, frankly, any day. I know there's some pastors who enjoy the funerals, but the emotions, what I find is that the emotions of every funeral really are quite unique and different. I had to do a funeral of a 20-year-old young man who had committed suicide. And the sadness was just so intense. And I remember the grieving, and I think this is what was true of that service. Questions permeated that audience asking why and, and all of those things that go with that. But for some funerals, I, I think I'd describe it like this. The grief is not centered around questions, but it's just frankly just loss. The, the loss of a friend, the loss of a spouse, a, a child in that sense. So there's this grieving of the person is not here anymore. And for some, I, I would describe it this way. There was the dominant emotion actually is joy. While there's some grieving, there's times where I've seen it where people are going, oh, they're at a better place. There's almost this relief that they're with Jesus now. And they don't have to be in pain and sorrow. And the people that attend that funeral know it. And so there's almost that tone of a celebration with it. But this morning... We need to hit the topic that comes into this text today, and the topic is on death. And it's one of those things that when you preach through a book of the Bible, it's interesting because you, you actually get more topics when you go through a book sometimes than when you do just picking topics and then just kind of developing a topic, a, a doctrinal topic. But this morning we come to a passage where it's dealing and answering some questions about dying. And so let's jump into the text this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 13. It's in your bulletin there, or you can open your Bibles. You might want to follow along there. Beginning, beginning with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not also grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and in the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now this passage is really quite interesting in that oftentimes when it's quoted, it's quoted when when there's teaching going on about the end times and when prophecy is being kind of worked out and detailed out. But it's also used extensively for kind of the, the idea of this is my end times view. That's how people tend to approach this text. And particularly those, if you believe in a rapture, they would point to this passage really as the roots of, of, of the rapture of the Christians. Rapture meaning being taken out of this world. But I, I came across a cartoon on the issue of the rapture. And, and let me put that on there. So the boss was just raptured. He's holding pants and a shirt there. Our troubles are all over. And you kind of go, okay, <laughs> is that true or not true? But, but understand this, that as I approached my study this week, while it's speaking to uh, about the future, I, I had to go, some things came to my mind, and one of them was a class that I had a long time ago. It was with Bible uh, interpretation, the, formerly the class was hermeneutics, and, and Bob Stein, my professor, he was drilling on us when we were looking at Scripture. He was pointing some, some phrases out, and it was stuff like this. What was the author's purpose of the text? What, it, what was Paul trying to accomplish in this passage or even this book, of, this letter that he writes? And there's maybe one phrase that he just kind of hammered over and over again is this. What was the author's original back then? What was his intent? So when we look today, we ask the question, what is Paul's intent Is it to use a theological term that his intent was to say, okay, class, now we're going to talk about the end times view. And I go, no, not really. That really wasn't the goal of just exposition on the idea of the end times. Because understand this, the purpose of the letter was to encourage this young church. And he wanted to help them survive in a world that was antagonistic to Jesus, that was antagonistic to the formation of the church. So he was pushing them to pursue a love relationship with God. Even last week when we looked at the verses, the challenge to love each other because this will help you as a church in walking forward in a broken world. So it doesn't make any sense in one step, all of a sudden for Paul to go, okay, now we're going to talk about the end times. And we're going to, I'm going to talk to you about premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial views of, of, of Scripture. No, he, that's really not Paul's intent. See, the core of this text, Paul is answering some questions. Because they have some, some things that are kind of going through the congregation and there's some doubts and fears with them that Paul, frankly, is addressing here. And, and the fears are centered on the issue of dying. And because death always leads to questions. You think of some of the questions. Is there life after death? 
Is death the final it and then, then we're done, we cease to exist? Is that how we treat death? Or, or this, is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Do all people go to heaven? Is there a pet heaven? The answer is yes for dogs and cats, no. So maybe offended some cat owners, but that's all right. See, what is the issue that he's addressing here? What's the question or the issue? Now, I understand this church was a group of young believers. But I believe this is what he was answering as he was focusing on these particular verses. And I'll put it on the screen. Some were convinced that those who are, were deceased would suffer some disadvantage because they died before Christ would come back. So they're thinking, they're pausing as people, obviously they were dealing with death in the congregation, and people were dying, and they're going, okay, are they, if Jesus comes back, what's going to happen with them? See, those were the questions this church was struggling with. They're worried about the ones who had passed away. Uh, look at it, verse 15, though, as Paul answers these questions. For this we declare to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, look at this, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now understand, when he uses that word fallen asleep, he's talking about death here. That's not sleep as in, in terms of going to bed at night. He's referring to those who had passed away. And he's saying this, that just because they've died, it doesn't mean that they're going to miss out on that same return of Christ. Matter of fact, look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, meaning those that will be taken up with Jesus, will be caught up, and look at the phrase, together with them. Who's together with them? It's the ones who are asleep, who had passed away. Those who are alive will get caught up and the ones that are dead will be taken up first. And we won't go back there, but in verse 14 it says to be with them, and most understand it this way, is that the dead in Christ will be coming back with Jesus when the ones that are on this earth will be taken up. And they will be there and they will not miss out on this great event. And this would have brought comfort to the Thessalonians. Don't grieve. You have hope. God's in control. You think of being absent with the bodies, being present with the Lord. So if we die, it comes to a place where we know that we're with Christ. But if people, we will be with them if Christ comes back. Look at verse 18, though, very directly to this issue of encouragement. Verse 18, Therefore, Encourage one another with these words, those that we just read. And, and I think back into how often do I point to Jesus coming back with encouragement and connect it to encouragement. I'm just not sure that I do it that often. But what's the application for us? 
how does this fit with us today? We're living in a world that's growing to become much more like this, this culture where the Thessalonica church was involved. The, the church had become antagonistic to, to the gospel. The, the church, the, the society is moving where church isn't relevant anymore. So how does this apply to us? I, I think this is what we, we can say. And if you're taking notes, I said it this way, number, point number eight. We need to live every day remembering that we have hope because of Christ's return. See, this is a call to remember that God is in control. And no matter how bad the world gets, folks, Jesus is coming back. Now, now, I realize that there are, maybe you're one of them, that has a different end times view, and like a post-millennial view where they would imply that the world is going to get better, and there's, the revival is going to break out, and they're going to usher in the kingdom. And they would also believe that the tribulation has already taken place. It takes place in the first century. But my sense, my, my understanding as I look at the culture I go, the direction of the world is not getting better. Matter of fact, it's getting worse, and it's coming to a time when God is going to need to intervene. So what's the significance for us today? What are we called to remember? And just pause and say, how does this coming of Jesus and and death, and how does it apply to us? In this context, well, some calls to remember if you're taking notes. Letter A, I said it this way. Jesus is coming back for his children. And I think there's the challenge for us is that we can work ourselves in a frenzy. We look around what's going on in the world. And the good news is that Jesus is coming back. And and matter of fact, let me show you a text that, that Jesus himself, statements that he said about coming back again. Look at John 14.1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I was going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus is preparing a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. See, Jesus told his disciples before the cross even, guys, I'm coming back. I will come back and I will return for you. But it also leads to another reminder, I think. Letter B, the future is more important than the present. See, we live our lives so much in the now. And, and one of the things when I kind of when I look at this early church and and their their understanding of Jesus coming back, one of the things I can't help but almost just kind of it oozes out of them is that they actually were thinking that Jesus was going to come back. And rightly so. And I look at our culture of today. And we kind of just go, oh yeah, if he comes back, it doesn't matter. You know, no, they really expected Jesus to return. And do we? Do we ever ponder the future? 
that Jesus is coming back. But he points to the future. In one sense, part of this encouragement is saying, guys, the future is where hope is found. So he's not telling them just, hey, buck it up here and, and live with it where there's persecution and all that stuff. No, he's saying the future is where there's hope. Now, now as we point to the future, this is also a reality. It is that we have to acknowledge that the future, even for us, has to, yet we have to deal with death and dying. And, and, and do we include looking ahead and do we ever bring death into it? And I go, I don't know. Or do we just try to ignore it? See, but there's a path I, I got to point out, and, and even an earlier scripture that he wrote in this very same letter. Look what 1 Thessalonians 1.9 writes earlier on in the letter. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and look at this, and to wait for his Son from heaven. There's that expectancy. They're waiting for him, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Folks, when you think of hope, even when you look to the future, Jesus is coming back, it also, we have to go back and go, there's something in the past that's vitally important that gives us hope in the future. And this verse points this out. It's the cross. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And that one day he's going to rescue us from the coming wrath of God. See, the past leads to hope in the future. And folks, those who have put their faith in Jesus, at that point we can hope and say God is going to call us up. If we're dead, he's going to raise us up. There's going to be a resurrection. If we're alive yet when he comes back, he's going to lift us up and we will be with him. But do we believe that? There was people in those days, matter of fact, it began a year, number of years later to the Corinthian church, they began to question whether there was actually a resurrection of dead people. And I want to put this text on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul addresses it here and he writes this letter to this church because people were denying, just saying, now ah, there's no resurrection. You die, you're done. But look what he says. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. A hard statement, because I stand up here and go, if the resurrection wasn't real, what I'm doing here, what we're doing here together, is useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. They're done with. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people must most to be most to be pitied. Folks, we stand as a body on the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real and it's true. And faith demands that we believe in the power of God to raise his son up and to raise us up as well. In this passage, we have to come back and say, if Christ wasn't raised, then really what we're doing is futile. It makes no sense. But here's, I think, the challenge. Because it kind of flabbergasts me at times that there are churches and there's people who attend in churches who don't care if the resurrection was real or not. They would say it's immaterial. And as I pondered that, I go, okay, they're believing that they don't care that Jesus came out of the grave, that he was resurrected, and yet there's this hope that they have inside them that goes, okay, if I'm dying, if I die... I'm sure that I'm going to get resurrected to heaven. They put weight and confidence in that. And I go, okay, why do they not care about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? And I think it's this. It's because of what Jesus stands for. Because if he really died and says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, it means then that, that I have to give myself and put myself under the authority of Jesus. And people don't want to do that. So what do they do? They just kind of roll the dice and they think this. Well, you know what? I'm just going to leave it up. I'm going to just assume that God sends everybody to heaven. He's going to resurrect me when I die. And that's good enough. And that's rolling the dice. That is rolling the dice. See, there's a world of people out there who don't seem to care about the resurrection of Jesus. Some don't think it's relevant. I'm just going to hope that God sends me to heaven rather than hell. And yet, and yet, and yet, when I do a funeral, when, when you visit somebody in the hospital who is dying, see, the truth is that people fear death. That is a reality. And you know what? If they are not in Christ, they should. That's truth. But, but here's a belief that is, is kind of meshed its way into the American culture. We believe this subtle lie, but let me remind you of the truth here. Letter C, you can't cheat death. None of us, unless Jesus comes back, we cannot cheat death. Think of the tragedy. These men this last week in Arizona, firefighting and the fire just consumed them. Not one of them went into that day that morning thinking this would be their last day. The airline crashed yesterday in San Francisco. A couple people died. Not those people didn't head into the yesterday and say, oh, you know what, I'm going to die today. None of them believed it. 
See, we keep thinking that death is optional. And even some of the some people who are obsessed with diet and exercise, and yeah, it's important, but, but for some people, they actually believe they can put off death and they don't have to die as long as I keep eat right, exercise right, and do the right things. And, and folks, that's a lie. Every week, there are thousands of people who die in America. Some die peacefully, some die in a car accident, some will die in a hospital bed from cancer, some will die unexpectedly, and they're going to be cut down by a blood clot or heart attack. See, death is inevitable. And you know what? You can miss a lot of appointments in life, but I'll say this, you'll never miss this one because you are not in control of it. Matter of fact, a text that I read quite often at funerals, look at Ecclesiastes 3.1. There is a time for everything, for a season for every activity under the heaven, a time to be born. We have a bunch of babies here today. But then there's a time to die. Look at Hebrews 9.27, even more pointed. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. That's not a very popular verse. People will go to sleep for the last time, and they wake up, and they're either going to be with Jesus, and maybe coming back where Jesus is going to take all of those believers who are still alive out, or they're going to wake up to judgment. And that's a hard thing to think about. But but there's another truth. Letter D. Jesus is returning with authority and with power. Look at verse 16 in the text today. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, a, a military term with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Folks, there's an announcement, there's a big announcement when Jesus comes back. The emphasis is very strong in the original language. And the Lord himself will be the one that will descend. There's no substitute, no stand-in, there's no angel that's going to get sent, no Old Testament hero that's going to come back. Jesus is going to come back with authority and with power. And this was the same man that was betrayed, put in front of Pilate, stood before a crowd, and the crowd says, crucify him. And they whipped him, they crucified him, they put him up on a cross to die, and buried in a borrowed tomb. Folks, the world is going to be in for a rude awakening. That Jesus is going to come back and people will know it. And they won't be able to dismiss him. And they're going to try to ignore him, but they won't. And many will mock him. But Jesus is coming back. But I've got to go down one path here. Because as Jesus speaks about coming back again, 
he also points out that it's not just those people out there that don't get it. He also points out a number of times the people that are attending churches of the day, the religious people of the day, some of those don't get it. Matter of fact, we place confidence. You know, we grow up in a Christian home. Oh, I must be a Christian. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I, I serve. I must be a Christian. We, we, we put our stock in what we do. Matter of fact, uh, to this day, there's a, there's a class that kind of haunts me. I was uh, one of my first years doing, uh, being a, a youth pastor. I had this eighth grade Sunday school class. It's probably 25, 22, 23 years ago. And it was an eighth grade Sunday school class. There's about 10 of them. I can picture the place we were in. I can picture where this girl sat next to a window. She was on my left hand side. Uh, I won't say her name, but we were talking about salvation that day, this eighth grader, and we were, I went around, the question was asked, how do you know that you're saved? And, and we got to her and she said this, my mom made me say this prayer. And you go, ouch. For her, she believed that there was a formula prayer that would somehow, if, if I prayed it, my mom's told me to do this, then I get fire insurance. And I go, no, there's no magical prayer. Matter of fact, look at Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is teaching religious people. And, and look what he says. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. People keep believing all paths lead to God, and God goes, no. There's a path that leads to destruction, and it's wide, and it's filled with people heading down that path. And a few verses later, look what he says this to the religious people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's even a, a piece of respect, it implies respect there. But not everyone who says will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we teach Sunday school in your name? Didn't we go to church in your name? And didn't we drive out demons in your name and perform even many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. And you go, how pointed is that? The very words of Jesus. You see, what does it mean for us to come to that place where we go, I know where Jesus is going to say, I know you. Where we stand before the judgment of God, where God looks at each of us and says, you are mine. What does that really mean? As we die and we stand before God, is he going to say, you're my child, or away from me, you evildoer? What does it mean? I think it's this, is that we truly have to embrace his son Jesus. We have to begin giving our love to him. That's what he wants. 
not to all of the other stuff out there. We need to recognize that his son died for our sins and he paid the penalty so there wouldn't be wrath. We need to begin to deal with the sin of autonomy in our lives and the sin of self-love and the sin of independence. We need to trust that he was the Son of God who who takes away the sin of the world. And that God loves us and he wants us to be his children. We need to believe that. And that his son died for the penalty of my sins. See, God's will is that you would embrace him, that you would give your life to him, that you would be certain, come to a place of certainty as you approach death, that day then we will die, and that at one point you're going to go, okay, God, am I your, yours or not? And Paul wants them to be certain. And we'll even see that even more next week. See, it comes, death forces us to ask questions just like this early church. What about a resurrection? Heaven, are we going to miss out? What? So, So here's the challenge. I don't know where everybody's at spiritually here today. But the call, if you've been listening, the call on your life that Jesus is inviting you, the God of this universe is inviting you to embrace his son, Jesus. And to bow before him and give your life to him. That you would know him. That you would understand what he has done for you. So that you can know for certain that on the day that you die, you will be with Jesus. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, death is a hard topic. And Lord, even as this church feared some questions surrounding death, it leads us to ask questions as well. What about death? What about the future? What about eternity? So Father, I I just would ask if if there's people here today that don't know you, they're not certain of being your child, I pray that they they would give their lives to you. They would embrace you through faith. They would recognize you as God and they would begin to live their life for you and they would accept the gift of salvation that you are offering. Lord, you want it. you've died for the whole world. You've died for every one of us here. So Lord, would we embrace you fully? Would we recognize you? Lord, and if we know you, I would pray that it would lead to worship, that it would lead to a response of celebration knowing that you're good and you've given life to us. So may we respond in spirit and in truth today. Lord, we just want to thank you again for your love that offers us certainty of a relationship with you. And we ask again that you would work in our hearts even as we leave today. And we give today to you these things we pray in your name. Amen.